please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Allergy Talk, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today's episode, we'll be reviewing three more articles from the May-June 2021 issue of Allergy Watch, a bi-monthly publication which provides research summaries to college members from the major journals of allergy and immunology. Hello, everyone. My name is Jerry Lee. I'm an associate professor at Emory University, and I'm the co-host of Allergy Talk. I'm joined, as usual, by my two co-hosts. Number one, Dr. Stan Feynman. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, it's good to be here. And I'm the uh, current editor-in-chief of Allergy Watch. Uh, I'm also a past president of the college and on the clinical faculty at Emory and in practice and then, here in Atlanta Allergy. Thank you, Stan. And then we have Dr. Marin Caravilla. Hi, Jerry. Hi, Stan. I'm Marin Caravilla, and I am an assistant professor of allergy and immunology at Emory University School of Medicine. So let's jump right into it. We have a lot of tools to treat uncontrolled asthma, but Stan, you have some new information about an old standby, azithromycin. Thank you. So this was a, an article that was reviewed in Allergy Watch by Dr. Chips. The article is entitled, The Cost Effectiveness of Azithromycin in Reducing Exacerbations in Uncontrolled Asthma. And it was published in the journal Asthma earlier this year. And basically it looks at data, it analyzes the data from a previous study called the AMAZES study, which was published in Lancet just a few years ago. But what it does is it analyzes the intervention of using azithromycin three times a week in 20 patients that were randomized to either placebo or the intervention, which is the use of azithromycin, I think it was 500 milligrams three times a week. And they compared the cost, really, of the care for their uh, patient's asthma. We've known that azithromycin can reduce exacerbations of asthma. It's been reported to improve quality of life. And the intervention is really just three times a week, the 500 milligrams. They did this for 42 weeks compared to standard therapy in this AMAZE study. And now they're analyzing the healthcare costs to try to see if this is a worthwhile thing to use this prophylactic macrolide antibiotic really to impact the asthma care. So the data did show that it lowered the healthcare costs. They were lowered by 46 euros. This is a study from Australia. So the numbers were reported in Australian dollars and in euros. I think we can relate to euros probably a little easier. But anyway, so it was 46 euros lower and the societal costs were about 154 euros lower in the group that received the azithromycin. And the differences really weren't that significant, but the add-on azithromycin produced a significantly better outcomes compared to the placebo and the net monetary benefit of the azithromycin was estimated at 1,243 euros, assuming that there was a willingness to pay 1590 per exacerbation avoided. In other words, when you take into account what they theoretically would have been willing to pay you know, towards treatment of a, of a flare-up. So the monetary benefit of the azithromycin did remain significant in a sensitivity analysis when they looked at it as well. So the add-on azithromycin treatment three times a week does seem to be cost-effective 
at reducing exacerbations in adults and patients with uncontrolled asthma. And they felt that it was, even when you try to figure in the potential for antibiotic resistance, and they did an analysis for that as well. But I thought that Dr. Chips's comment was particularly cogent in that he said that this cost-effective strategy could be used before prescribing biologic therapy. And that's really not on our radar screen per se, but maybe we need to put it on our radar screen more. I was curious about this article, so I actually looked at the AMAZES trial study population, and I, I noticed a couple of things. The, the first one is that the mean age of the population was in their 60s. 80% were atopic, but less than half of them were defined as eosinophilic asthma with a mean eosinophilic count of the entire study population under 300 and 39% ex-smokers. I guess I bring that up because I think of the April trial where they looked at it in kids and you know it did reduce exacerbation in toddler wheezers. And when they were trying to operationalize the approach to use azithromycin in, in the toddler wheezer population, they suggested that the population that would benefit the most would be the non-aspartictive index, non eczema, allergy, endotypes. So who really benefits azithromycin? Is it really all comers? Do we think it's non-T2? I know that article didn't answer that, but you wonder, is this population in the MASIS trial reflective of all asthma? I guess is the point I'm trying to say. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't really talk about the characteristics of the patients, and they were quite older compared to what a lot of us see in our day-to-day practices. And I believe they do use the azithromycin in some of the COPD type uh, patients in some of the chronic lung disease, but marrying more adults, I think, than we do. So maybe you can comment on that. Yes. And I have not used azithromycin as a strategy on any of them. I don't really foresee myself replacing a trial of biologic therapy despite cost effectiveness with azithromycin. However, there is certainly, as Jerry said, a large population of patients with non-type 2 asthma for whom we have very few treatment options and beyond an anticholinergic agents as an adjunct to high-dose ICS lobotherapy. So that would certainly be a population in whom adjunctive azithromycin may be indicated. Yeah, I would say that my only experience with azithromycin has been COPD that add-on treatment for the COPD patient who are getting exacerbations even. I'm suggesting I'm trying to fix COPD exacerbations. Again, I'm not sure how much of the overlap of that indication for COPD is overlapping with the population in the Mesa's trial. I'm just throwing that out there. I take it back. I've prescribed prophylactic azithromycin, but that's in people with underlying antibody deficiencies who have concomitant like asthma, COPD, and a history of as you said, like recurrent acute flares, but not so far in patients with type 2 asthma. I can also foresee using prophylactic azithromycin in patients, for instance, who have susceptible organisms on bronchoscopy or something like that, but not routinely. So I think there definitely is a use for it. So Stan, thanks for bringing our attention. And I do have patients that still come into the hospital. So we should at least consider the fact that it's a lot cheaper to do a trial of azithromycin to prevent a hospitalization. So in the end, it, it, we should at least consider it in our arsenal. So Marin, I think you have this next article, which I think you already know a lot about. <laughs> so I think this article is preaching to the choir. So tell us 
Should we really be worried about ancefrosifazolin? Yeah, thanks, Jerry. So this is a paper that was published in JAMA Surgery earlier this year, and reviews cefazolin use in patients with penicillin allergy labels, and specifically in the context of perioperative use. So there is literature that describes a 50% increase in the rate of surgical site infections among penicillin allergy-labeled individuals, and that is a consequence of cefazolin avoidance and the use of alternative antibiotics. At Emory, we have actually been using cefazolin in all comers with penicillin allergy labels in the perioperative setting for the past several years, except for patients with a history of severe cutaneous adverse reactions. And we've also been able to demonstrate improvement in patient outcomes as a result of this quality improvement measure. The reason that we chose to not preemptively pursue penicillin allergy testing that could potentially hold up surgery, et cetera, in patients who presented for preoperative evaluation with a penicillin allergy is because there is a large body of data that has established that cross-reactivity between penicillins and cephalosporins is primarily based on the R1 side chain and not the shared beta-lactam ring structure. And this is especially holds true for cefazolin, which has a very unique R1 side chain that's distinct from penicillins, but also even other cephalosporins. And what the data describes is that cefazolin should be safe to administer in patients with a penicillin allergy. See, the authors of this paper performed a systematic review and meta-analysis to evaluate the incidence of dual allergy to cefazolin and penicillins, and they were careful not to use the term cross-reactivity as the primary outcome because they did not look for cross-reactivity. The term cross-reactivity implies a biologic reaction that's based on a common chemical structure that is unlikely between cefazolin and penicillins. So they looked at a total of 77 studies that met inclusion criteria and 30 primary studies that looked precisely as patients with either self-reported or confirmed penicillin allergy and the development of a cefazolin reaction in these patients. And this assessed a total of 6,000 participants. And in 13 of these studies, cefazolin allergy was assessed either by means of skin testing or drug challenges. And what they found is that out of these 6,000 patients, cefazolin allergy was identified in 44 participants, resulting in a frequency of 0.7%. And interestingly, this frequency was lower for patients with self-reported penicillin allergy at 0.6% as compared with those with a confirmed allergic reaction to penicillin on diagnostic testing at 3%. And similar react results were observed when specifically analyzing the surgical setting, and they only found one hypersensitivity reaction in every 1,000 patients with an unconfirmed penicillin allergy receiving cefazolin. A total of 146 patients had an index allergy to cefazolin itself and subsequently received penicillin and or they were tested for penicillin allergy. And in this cohort, the frequency of dual allergy was about 4% considering surgical patients only. And the main take-home for me from this paper was that the debate remains whether this is truly cross-reactivity versus 
dual allergy among beta-lactam antibiotics. They did find a higher frequency of dual penicillin and cefazolin allergy from studies that used skin testing as their diagnostic method. And this does not necessarily reflect clinical cross-reactivity. It may reflect false positive results because we don't know the true positive predictive value of a positive skin test. An alternative explanation for this high dual allergy rate for patients with a confirmed penicillin allergy is possible underlying multiple drug hypersensitivity syndrome that is a greater predisposition to allergic reactions in general among patients with a history of medication allergy. But overall, the low rate of dual allergy should increase provider confidence and hospital uh, antimicrobial stewardship measures in using cefazolin in patients allergic to penicillins, especially in the perioperative setting where cefazolin is the optimal antibiotic and there are potentially dire consequences of cefazolin avoidance. In our experience at our institution thus far, there have been no cases of cefazolin anaphylaxis in patients with pre-existing penicillin allergy labels, and so this study provides even more evidence to support our existing approach. It's just so amazing. Just a simple intervention has saved so much healthcare waste, given vancomycin and other ridiculous antibiotics and potentially surgical site infections. Mm-hmm just by just educating people about the lack of relationship between penicillin and cefazolin. So I think this, again, just shows us why allergy immunology involvement and consultation has significant impact on the healthcare system, not because we're just racking up charges. We're trying to save money, and we can see 20 patients a day and work as hard as we can. But if we save millions of dollars based on unnecessary antibiotics and C. diff and and all the other complications of using inappropriate antibiotics, individually, we are making greater impacts on the healthcare system. Kudos to your project, Marin, and everyone else who works on this. This really shows the value of our specialty. Maybe it's good that it was published in the surgical journal of the AMA because, <laughs> uh, Jerry, you're, I guess we're preaching to the choir here because we're all allergists, mostly allergists listening to this podcast, but I think we need to get this information out. Anyway, I'm glad we're talking about it. Hopefully you can share it with your surgical colleagues. No, you're right, Stan, because when we first rolled out our algorithm at Emory, it was just met with so much of resistance by our surgical colleagues who essentially accused us of being vigilantes and that we got a lot of pushback and it really just took a lot of education and several like grand round presentations, et cetera, to bring everyone on board. And that's culture change. How many people still quote that there's a 10% cross-reactivity between penicillin and cephalosporin? It's like, how often do you hear that? It's amazing that we all have a job to do messaging locally in our community, to educate. And and again, when we get involved in hospital systems and provide quality improvement initiatives, individual people can save millions of dollars, like millions of dollars. Uh, again, I, I just encourage everyone to to take on this role. You, you can imagine how much small interventions in an algorithm can make massive change to the care of patients. I have one more article to go over, and this was sort of a wake-up call for me on something that I don't really consider a lot. So this article is entitled, 
cardiovascular changes during peanut-induced allergic reactions in human subjects. This was published in JACI in 2020. And basically, this was studies of cardiovascular uh, parameters in patients undergoing anaphylaxis for a peanut clinical trial. So these are patients enrolled in the TRACE peanut study, and they all had an entry, double-blind placebo-controlled food challenge, and subsequent challenges. But during that initial challenge, they had significant cardiovascular parameters that were measured initially, and that involved an EKG, that involved monitoring for stroke volume using a non-invasive method. They looked measured cardiac output, they measured heart rate, blood pressure, skin blood flow of the peripheral circulation through laser Doppler. And they were able to get real-time information during the oral food challenge, particularly of the cardiovascular physiology during anaphylaxis. And so they were able to capture data from 57 adults who underwent anaphylaxis to peanut through the entry and sometimes subsequent food challenge, about 26 had a second food challenge later in the study. And they had pretty significant reactions. About 39% of the patients underwent anaphylaxis. They had some grade four reactions, approximately 44% of the reactions were grade four in the initial food challenge. They had some pretty sick patients. They had to use epinephrine. So some of the reactions, I guess, did not receive epinephrine. That's my interpretation of the result. But essentially, during these challenges, they were able to make certain observations. First, when patients underwent anaphylaxis, there was a decrease in stroke volume and compensatory increase of heart rate and blood pressure that did not appear to correlate with objective clinical symptoms, meaning that even if the patient was feeling well, the patient was having these cardiovascular and physiological changes. And if they did have symptoms, the observed changes in cardiac physiology of decreased stroke volume could perceive the onset of symptoms by 30 minutes. So they could have a compromised cardiovascular circulation 30 minutes, even before they start having any symptoms that you would have labeled anaphylaxis. So again, the GI symptoms were probably the most common symptom they saw in this study, abdominal pain. And when they looked at the GI symptoms, it seemed to correlate with the changes in stroke volume and heart rate. And the idea behind that is that there is shunting of fluid into the GI circulation, and therefore that is being taken away from your central circulation, decreasing preload and venous return to the heart. So that fluid shift to the GI compartment manifests as pain, but also is potentially stressing out your cardiovascular compartment. Now, as part of this study, they looked at the effect of IV fluids. And so when you administered IV fluids, there was a correlation between improvement 
of GI symptoms and return of stroke volume to normal levels rather than control, meaning that as a gross measure, GI symptoms do seem to correlate with these fluid shifts and this decrease in stroke volume. So a lot of these patients didn't develop overt hypotension. They didn't, again, have anything imminently uh, life-threatening, but they did have all cardiovascular changes regardless of reaction severity. And so therefore, the only reason that they did not manifest with hypotension is that they were aggressively compensating for this fluid shift. So really, the only reason patients are going to get hypotension is that the severity of the fluid shift overwhelms their compensatory response. And that happens very early, even subclinically during food challenges. You could imagine then that once we are actually seeing overt hypotension or cardiovascular changes, we are way late in the game. This has been going on for a while by the time you have even brought to your attention. This is not a new event. This has been brewing. Like I said, some of the patients had detectable changes in stroke volume 30 minutes before the onset of reactions. One of the messages from this article is that if we know that the patient is aggressively compensating for these fluid shifts during anaphylaxis and you're initiating treatment, perhaps you should consider earlier introduction of IV fluids because essentially the patient is already under enormous stress by the time you are treating the patient. And potentially, if they're having overt cardiovascular symptoms, they are immensely compromised. Again, I think that was just a wake-up call about something that we don't really think about. We only see what's on the surface, but there's a lot of things underneath the hood that's happening during food challenges. And so we shouldn't forget about the role of fluid resuscitation in anaphylaxis. I think you're right, Jerry. I don't think we may be as aggressive with IV fluids as we should be. I mean, we do challenges in the office a lot and we we don't do very many IV fluids, but we need to be ready and to do them. I recall another article, we, and I can't remember the exact title of the, of the article, but it was related to the fact that when people are dehydrated or if they don't have enough fluid, then they're more likely to have anaphylaxis basically was the bottom line. So what we've been doing is we've been encouraging all of our patients who are getting oral challenges to make sure they hydrate well and come in with bottles of water because we want to make sure that they have as much fluid on board as possible. I think that your point of the fact that things are going on before we really see it is scary. Absolutely. So does this mean that because of the fluid shift into the gut, is this more relevant to uh, food or medication anaphylaxis that's triggered by the oral route? I'm not sure about that. I only can comment that I do notice abdominal symptoms more commonly in oral or food-induced anaphylaxis, but that could have been my own bias. I, I would have to look at a study to see if that actually pans out in research or you know, questionnaires. Because when I was looking at the study, like my main question was, how do you identify or how do you predict those people who are not going to respond to epinephrine? How are you going to select those people who are potentially going to require IV fluids? Like, do you just put IV access in all of these patients to start off with at baseline? Because when we first started doing outpatient aspirin desensitizations, we put an IV in everybody before we started. But then we stopped because it was 
painful and it ended up being unnecessary almost always. So I was just wondering, like in the pediatric side and Stan, in your practice, do you establish IV access before challenges or? Well, in clinical and in private practice, we don't, but I do think that we may need to be a little more aggressive at using IVs in patients who are giving, let's say that second dose of epi, you know, let's say they have a reaction, mm-hmm. we're giving epi and we, we probably need to consider the IV fluids if we have to use another epi uh, dose, if they're not responding that well, for sure. I know the GI or the people that do the challenges for uh, FPIs always put in IVs. We don't do that in our office, but we don't do those challenges in our office. But maybe, Jerry, you could comment about your experience over at Emory. My experience mirrors you, Stan. We don't do IV access preemptively, but certainly anybody who is not responding to initial therapy does get IV access, and we have the capability to do that. I think with this article, it does show me that any cardiovascular compromise should be considered extremely unusual, that that's not the first sign of cardiovascular changes. That's just meaning the patient's not able to compensate for their existing compromise. And I would definitely take that a lot more seriously now, now that I know that it's just been brewing the whole time. I, I guess I should have known that, but now it's really starkly shown in front of me. So I think that rounds up our episode for today. Again, thank you for your time. And if you do enjoy the podcast, we'd love to get our, that rating from you. Just please rate our podcast in iTunes. Please send us your feedback, corrections, and suggestions. If you have an idea for a future podcast episode, email that feedback to allergytalk, one word, at aci.org. This is Jerry Lee. I appreciate you spending time with us, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. The ACAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice or intended to replace the judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to the procedures, professionals, products, or methods discussed in the podcast, and it does not approve or endorse any products, professional services, or methods that may be referenced.